Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. If you think, oh, I'll be happy when I get more money or change my job, you're usually wrong. I think one misconception we have is that happiness is a, like, a destination, right? That we'll get to somewhere and we'll be happily ever after. Happily ever after only works if you have, like, two seconds to live. <laughs> From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. The professor behind Yale's famous class on happiness talks about the everyday habits that can make life more positive. And author and TV writer Johnny Sun says burnout forced him to reevaluate his relationship with work. I think I've sort of bought into this almost like capitalistic notion of productivity where like the more productive you are, the more valuable you are. Plus, the goodwill does not want your unusable junk. A lampshade, which is stained and disgusting and literally falling apart. Dental medical tool. Um, We'll hear about wish cycling. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Okay, how would you define happiness? Yeah, well, I think there's like a million different ways to define happiness, to be totally honest. But I tend to think of happiness in the same way that social scientists do, which is this idea that happiness is about having joy in your life and having joy with your life. That's Professor Lori Santos, host of the podcast The Happiness Lab and a psychology professor at Yale University. If we're maximizing kind of you being happy in your life, got lots of positive emotions, and you're happy with your life, you're really satisfied with your life at a meta level, then I think we can say that you're happier. Professor Santos teaches the wildly popular class at Yale called Psychology and the Good Life, which is all about happiness. She also offers a similar course online where millions of people have enrolled. I've been teaching psychology at Yale for over a decade now, but in just the last couple of years, I took on a new role where I became a, a head of college on campus. This is a role where I live with students on campus. I eat with them in the dining hall. I really see their life up close and personal. And to be honest, I didn't like what I was seeing. You know, so many of the students I was interacting with were experiencing depression and anxiety. And this wasn't just something that was true of Yale. I mean, the statistics are really scary. Right now, nationally, more than one in three college students is reporting being so depressed it's difficult to function. Over 60% of college students say that they're overwhelmingly anxious. And more than one in 10 college students has seriously considered suicide in the last year. And this is all kind of before COVID, right? And so I realized, you know, we weren't meeting our educational mission at Yale if we weren't dealing with this mental health crisis. And so the class was my attempt to you know, bring together everything I know in the science of psychology about how to improve your happiness, how to boost up your well-being, and to package it for students in a way where they could really understand practically how to implement these ideas in their daily life. Yeah, one of the things I find so interesting is that we think we know what will make us happy, but research shows that we're very often completely wrong. So what are some of the things we falsely identify as key to happiness? Yeah, I think one of the big ones is our circumstances, just generally speaking. We think to be happy, we need to change our job, we need to get more money, we need to switch our relationship, we need to buy something. But the 
data show for the most part that unless you're in a really traumatic set of circumstances, for the most part, improving your circumstances isn't going to help. It might give you a little bit of a happiness boost for a short while, but it's never as big a boost as we think, and it's never a boost for as long as we think. We're much better off trying to change our mindsets and our specific behaviors. That's not what we tend to go to. You know, we tend to put a lot of energy into changing our circumstances, getting more money and that sort of thing, but that's just not going to impact our happiness in the way we think. You you say, you know, that anyone can be happy, but it takes work. That happiness requires like a lifetime of intentional habit. So what are some of those simple practices that you teach people that can help? Yeah, one of the simplest ones is just to bump up your social connection. You know, there's a very famous study in positive psychology that suggests that a necessary condition for high happiness is simply being really social, just being around other people, prioritizing time with your friends and family members. And there's even evidence that the simple act of trying to like chat with a stranger can boost your positivity. You know, again, these aren't necessarily things that we think, but the science really shows that it's it's quite positive. It can really boost our our happiness. Another and really that's even for for like introverts? Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the study is that especially in this sort of talking to strangers study, I get lots of emails from students and, you know, people who listen to my podcast who say, okay, that sounds like a great happiness boosting strategy if you're an extrovert, but as an introvert, I would hate that. And the researcher who did this work, Nick Epley, looked at personality variables like introversion. And what he finds is that introverts really predict that that social connection condition, the talking to stranger condition, will feel awful. Awful. It will really reduce their positivity. It won't just be neutral. It'll be like actively bad for happiness. But when the introverts really engage in that social connection, they get the same boost as the extroverts do. Hmm. So interesting. Okay, so social connection. What are some of the other habits? Yeah, a second habit that's related to social connection is just to become a little bit more other-oriented, right? To kind of prioritize other people's happiness more than your own. And I think this is really countercultural. You know, right now, especially during COVID, there's a lot of talk about self-care or treat yourself, like self, self, self. But if you look at happy people, happy people aren't is focused on their own happiness. They're really focused on other people. Happy people donate more money to charity. Happy people tend to spend time volunteering to help others. They're just kind of paying attention to other people's happiness more. And the research shows that, you know, even if that's not your natural tendency, the simple act of forcing yourself to do nice things for others. In one study, it was, you know, spend some money on someone else. Those studies show that people who do that will really show a bigger boost in happiness than they would if they spent money on themselves. So some of the other things that I've read you suggest is like, you know, sleep at least eight hours or write down things that you're grateful for. It makes sense that these things would work, but it also sounds like work. It sounds kind of tiring. So how have you personally been able to integrate some of these lessons into your life and is it hard sometimes? Oh, it's definitely hard. It's hard all the time. I mean, I'm the professor yeah. that teaches this stuff, and it definitely doesn't come naturally to me. I've had to make some pretty substantial changes to try to build this stuff in. But, you know, it helps to be the professor teaching this because I have to practice what I preach. You know, if I'm, you know, giving a lecture and my students can tell I haven't slept because I've been working on the PowerPoint, you know, they're going to call me out on that, you know, as soon as I'm like, hey, I'm telling you to get eight hours of sleep. You know, same thing with acts of gratitude. There's so much work showing that this mindset of being more grateful 
can significantly boost your well-being, even in as little as two weeks of trying to put these sort of gratitude into practice in your own life. But again, it's kind of hard. You know, the opportunity cost is there. It's it's easier to complain than it is to think about your blessings. But again, nowadays, you know, if I try to complain to a friend over text, this often happens with um, my producer, Ryan, who works on my podcast. I'll be complaining about something and he'll be like, um, gratitude? You know, like, didn't you just have a whole episode on this? And so I have the social support to remind me that I'm supposed to be putting these things into practice. But as the research suggests, if you do that, you will see significant boost in well-being. And I've seen, you know, just since teaching this course, you know, really impressive boost in my own well-being, mostly just because I'm doing these practices more often. Hmm. Yeah, when we emailed you to set this interview up, we got this automatic reply where you say, I am currently trying my own personal well-being experiment. I'm going to try to practice what I preach and reduce the amount of time I usually spend on email. So draw for us the connection to happiness there. Yeah, that is my attempt to boost what's called time affluence, the subjective sense that you have a lot of free time. You know, we think wealth affluence builds happiness. We think if we had lots of money, we'd be happier. Not so much. But it turns out that if you're wealthy in time, you're definitely happier. Um, Time affluence is the opposite of what many of us experience a lot, which is time famine, where we're literally starving for time. And research shows that the physiology of time famine works a lot like hunger famine, where you're like putting your body into stress by not having enough free time. Yeah, there was this Harvard study that basically found that people on their deathbed, they were not talking about the great moments in their life being the moments at work, but they were talking about their connection with loved ones or their pride in their children that they raised. I wonder if this fixation, you know, like our false fixation on these big goals, like, you know, I'm if I win an award or if I uh, make more money, I'm going to be happy. I wonder if it just seems easier in the short term than like the more almost simple common sense things we've been talking about, like kindness, gratitude or socializing. Yeah, I think, you know, this is another spot where our minds really lead us astray. We assume that the happiness change is going to come, you know, if we get some big moment, right, the big award, the big accolade, you know, getting tenure at Yale or, you know, I don't know, like winning an Olympic medal or something. And again, it's not like those things are bad for happiness. You know, those moments feel good. But two seconds later, you've already done it, right? It's done. You know, I think one misconception we have is that happiness is a like, destination, right? That we'll get to somewhere and we'll be happily ever after. But as my psychologist colleague Dan Gilbert at Harvard says, happily ever after only works if you have like two seconds to live. <laughs> like you don't want to get to happily ever after because mm. like happiness just doesn't last. A, a better metaphor for happiness comes from another colleague, Nick Epley at the University of Chicago, where he talks about happiness as a leaky tire. You know, like you pump up your happiness tires with a little social connection and gratitude. And over time, they'll kind of go down and you got to pump them back up again with something good. But it's not as though you do one pump and, you know, your tires are good forevermore. You kind of constantly need to be putting work into it. Hmm. I want to come back to the habits that help us be happier. Do these tips like socialize more, sleep more, express gratitude, be kind, be in the now. Do these apply during the pandemic? Yeah, I think even more so. I mean, I think one of the big 
hits on our mental health during the pandemic has been a lack of social connection, right? You know, imagine a virus that at the time we most need to be like with other people, we're scared and we're uncertain, you know, that's the time that the virus says, nope, for your physical health, you got to socially distance and isolate and so on. I think that's one of the reasons people are having such a hit is our even routine social connections, like chatting with the barista at the coffee shop. We're kind of not getting those naturally as much anymore. And one of the things I tell my students is like, this is a time when we need to be really intentional about getting social connection and, you know, make that Zoom happy hour with friends or, you know, call your mom or do that socially distanced walk with a colleague if you're able to do that, right? Just find ways to get social connection in because we're missing it so much. You told The Atlantic that people should not waste this time period right now when we're in transition and more people are getting vaccinated and returning to pre-pandemic activities. What should we be doing right now to set ourselves up for more happiness when the pandemic is over? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the things we should be doing is just being really intentional about kind of coming out of this pandemic moment. You know, there's probably not going to be a moment where, I don't know, somebody like clacks the director's, you know, thing. It's like, okay, pandemic over, you know, like the time, you know, we're back to normal, right? But we'll all go through our own moments where we start going back to normal life. You know, once you're vaccinated and your friends are vaccinated, there's a real question about how much of the old life you want to build back. And so I think this is a moment where we need to be really intentional about the stuff that we've liked and the stuff that we want to keep. And one of the reasons that it, that's so important right now is that there's lots of evidence for what's called a, the fresh start effect, which is the, the fact that we're more motivated to start new positive habits at natural temporal breaks. You know, so if you switch jobs or if you move or if you have like a big birthday, you turn 30 or 40 or something, those are moments when you're like ready to start that new self-improvement project and you're more motivated to do it. This ending of COVID is kind of a natural temporal break for all of society at once. And I really think it's a moment that we could have a collective fresh start effect where we could all be building in healthier habits as individuals and in our organizations and our families. And so it's important not to mess that up, to think really critically about what you yourself have noticed improved your well-being during this time and what you want to keep from COVID life and what you want to go back to from kind of pre-COVID life. Lori Santos is a psychology professor at Yale University and the host of the podcast, The Happiness Lab. Professor Santos, thank you so much for coming on next. Thank you so much for having me. No one is experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic in exactly the same way, but we do share many common fears and anxieties, even when we're asleep. Dream experts say the evolution of COVID dreams tells us a lot about our waking life, too. New England Public Media's Karen Brown reports. So who's been having recurring dreams this past year? Okay, I'll start. I'm in a supermarket wearing a mask and no one else is. Everyone is breathing on me and I can't get away. Yeah, I had one where um, I was being chased by a ton of maskless people, <laughs> but they were like monsters, but without masks. That's Renee Manley of Springfield, Massachusetts. Here's Jenny Hansel of Haydenville. I'm in a crowded place and they're all pushing and shoving and everybody's too close and nobody's wearing masks. Those I've seen all along. Deirdre Barrett is a psychologist at Harvard University who studies dreams. And what's evolved is that it's more and more the dreamer is the one that suddenly realizes they don't have their mask. And it's embarrassment or shame or worry about what people are going to think of this. They sort of merged in with the common dream theme of being naked in public. 
Since the pandemic started, Barrett has collected about 15,000 dreams from around the world. Early on, a lot of people were dreaming about insect attacks, which she didn't see when studying other collective traumas like 9-11. The bug attacks and the invisible monsters, those seem to be a very unique metaphor for the, the COVID that we're these tiny particles that we can't see, but they can kill us. So COVID has taken so much from us. Um, it's also given us a collective experience. Sivia Gover of Northampton is a dream work professional. She helps people interpret their dreams. Her business picked up dramatically early in the pandemic, mostly, she thinks, because more people were working from home and sleeping longer. They were being able to wake up with their natural rhythms so that they were getting to enjoy the long REM dream cycle in the mornings where the most vivid and memorable dreams take place. My dreams are, are very vivid now. Now they, they didn't used to be, but they are now. Renee Manley, a disabled vet, first got COVID a year ago and is still suffering. At first, her dreams revolved around her symptoms. Where I would be jolted awake in the middle of the night, almost like a fight or flight response. Um, like I would think that I couldn't breathe, but I could. Now Manley's having those dreams about masks. Gover thinks those are not just about fear of catching COVID, but also a sign that society is getting used to a new life prop, like a new technology. Gover's clients are also reporting a lot of Zoom dreams. Whereas it used to be, you know, that classic dream, I'm trying to dial the phone and I can't get through. You know, now people are having dreams that they're on a Zoom call and, you know, there are technical mishaps. And recently, psychologist Deirdre Barrett has noticed a lot of back-to-work anxiety dreams. It could be something kind of metaphoric. In, in one dream, the office had put down this filthy, wet carpet and instigated a rule where people had to take off their shoes and socks at the door. Many people report their dreams changing with the stages of the pandemic. Jenny Hansel, a nonprofit director and artist, has asthma. And early on, she was terrified of breathing problems. Knowing that that was kind of how COVID manifested, I think my anxiety dreams kicked in right away every time I had the tiniest cough or whatever. But now she feels like the end of the pandemic is in sight. And apparently so does her subconscious. I was sitting in a chair and there was a big glass in front of me that looked like a big messy glass of chocolate syrup. And that was the vaccine. And they were about to put it into my arm. And it seemed weird, but I knew it was fine and I didn't care. I was just, I just think I was crying hysterically in the dream because I was finally getting the vaccine. Barrett says dreams can also shed light on social trends and inequities. In her dream research, she found significant gender differences. Women have more anxiety dreams about homeschooling than men. Women also report having twice as many sad or angry dreams than before COVID. And men's were just the same, indistinguishable from pre-pandemic times. They, they did not have sadder or angrier dreams. Which suggests to Barrett that women, who tend to hold more frontline jobs and home duties, are bearing the brunt of the pandemic. But whatever the dreams really mean, that may be less important than the act of sharing them. In normal times, listening to another person's dream can feel tedious. But during the pandemic, Barrett says, it offers real comfort and connection. It seems like these kind of metaphoric scenarios and vivid images that our dreams come up with, they just cut to the kind of deepest emotional 
part of what we're feeling. In other words, to learn you're not the only one dreaming of bugs crawling all over your skin, well, that's a true bond. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. The Pew Research Center says the pandemic has pushed more women out of the workforce than men, and particularly women of color. If you've left your job in the last year, we want to hear from you. Why did you leave, and what has life been like for you since? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. Coming up, we're going to talk about taking a break and how it can be a very real struggle. Author, illustrator, and TV writer Johnny Sun reflects on productivity, rest, and loneliness. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Johnny Sun's new book, Goodbye Again, Essays, Reflections, and Illustrations, is out now. In it, he grapples with his relationship to work and free time, anxiety, loneliness, and his houseplants. Johnny is a doctoral candidate at MIT, a creative researcher at the Harvard Meta Lab, and he was a staff writer for the sixth season of the TV show BoJack Horseman. His first book was called Everyone's an Alien, When You're an Alien Too. He joins us now. Johnny, welcome to Next. Hey, thank you for having me. So in April of 2019, you gave a TED Talk called You're Not Alone in Feeling Lonely. And you explained to the audience that for years, you've written jokes and shared them on social media as a way to connect. And and let's take a listen to what you said. For example, a few months ago, I posted this app idea for a dog walking service where a dog shows up at your door and you have to get out of the house and go for a walk. If there are app developers in the audience, please sign me after the talk. Um, Or I'd like to share every time I feel anxious about sending an email. When I sign my emails best, it's short for I am trying my best, which is short for please don't hate me, I promise I'm trying my best. Or my answer to the classic icebreaker, if I could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, I would. I am very lonely. When did you realize that jokes could help temper loneliness? At a very young age, I feel like I was always the kid who was kind of making wisecracks. Not like the class clown, but I think I always had like a few friends sitting around me that I could say something and make like a couple of my friends around me laugh. And um, I've always found humor as a really great way to make connection. For me, it's always been this thing that I could summon or work on or use to reach out to somebody else. And I find if, if I can make someone laugh or if like we can laugh together at something, suddenly I've made a friend or suddenly I've made a connection with someone that I hadn't before. And it sounds like it came naturally to you. 
it's interesting. I, I mean, I like I grew up uh, watching like comedy with my parents a lot. We would kind of go to Blockbuster and rent comedies all the time, and it, that was just the thing I was drawn to. And I actually feel like I kind of had to work on being funny, or I, I, I guess maybe when I was younger, I like aspired to be one of those types of people that could warm a room with a joke. And that concept still seems very scary to me to be in front of a room. But I think I found kind of my happy place through writing. I can still sort of safely be at my desk, but still connect to people through the writing. It's pretty um, astounding how much you've been involved in as a screenwriter, an artist, a book writer, a PhD candidate. I think you even went to architecture school. And a big theme of your new book, Goodbye Again, is your relationship to work and rest. And you actually wrote this collection of essays during a year when you were supposed to be intentionally resting. Why did you want to take a break? That's a really good question. I think I've sort of bought into this almost like capitalistic notion of productivity where like the more productive you are the more valuable you are this this idea or this myth that the best thing to do with your life is to be busy and that if you have any free time uh you're doing something wrong because you could be using it to do something quote unquote productive or valuable and um eventually that led to uh, multiple sort of periods in my life where I was incredibly burnt out eventually I realized maybe that like maybe I need to really look at how I think about work and how I sort of interface with it Um, because this life of burnout and overwork I realized was just not sustainable yeah I mean there is this irony behind this collection of essays because when you were supposed to be resting you actually wrote this entire book. Do you feel like your experiment in rest and downtime worked or because you were writing that whole time, did it feel unsuccessful? Um, I think a little bit of both. And I'm happy you're talking about the irony because I think that is like one of the central ideas that I was trying to write about, this this feeling of contradiction. And I wanted the book um, not to feel like a set of answers that somebody had figured out. Um, but really a um, a set of questions and a set of provocations that I don't necessarily know if I had the answer to, but it was kind of difficult. One of the many things you've done is work as a staff writer for the Netflix TV show BoJack Horseman. It's an animated comedy series about a horse who was a big TV star in the 80s and 90s, but is now kind of washed up. And you worked on the sixth and final season this was toward the end of the show like how did you get to that place where you were brought on so my first book came out in 2017 and through that there was a, a manager in LA who really liked the book and uh, wanted to represent me and also through that book the creator of Bojack Horseman had read that book and and really liked it and I think it was it's sort of through that the strange like <laughs> LA industry fog where like I don't really know what happens or what conversations happen but at some point <laughs> I got there you are a call and said like oh yeah there's a spot in this room if if you're interested um and, and they'd really love to have you on 
That's amazing. So um, season six, episode 11, you are the staff writer. And in this episode, these reporters are working on this pretty explosive story on Bojack Horseman. They're investigating his involvement in the death of his former co-star who had died of a heroin overdose. And he's working on drafting a public statement. And here he is going over that statement with his agent. What do you got? My relationship with Sarah Lynn was complicated, as relationships between addicts often are. However, certain aspects of the story are inaccurate or exaggerated. This story has started an important conversation, and I look forward to continuing to work on my own progress. There's no way to not sound like bull**t. Yeah, well... This place was supposed to be a fresh start for me. Rehab was supposed to be a fresh start. But no matter how many starts I get, there's always the same ending. Everything falls apart, and I end up alone. That's Bojack Horseman. It's read by Will Arnett, and he's talking to his agent, Princess Carolyn, which is read by Amy Sedaris. And there's that loneliness theme again. Johnny, what was the inspiration for this statement and the writing that comes after it that we just heard? I think with most shows, and certainly with uh, BoJack, the writing team was a, a large group of writers, and sort of the room throughout this last season, we were talking about a lot of themes of accountability and what it means to imagine that you are owed a fresh start. And so a lot of like the ideas around the statement and the letter really are to poke at sort of these flimsy, sort of non-apology apology statements that abusers and terrible people have sort of been putting out in the media for a while that use kind of generic general language without addressing any of the actual things that they did and so that was something that we really wanted to to point at yeah i mean one of the things that i really like about this clip is that you know we come out of this public statement or a draft of public statement from Bojack Horseman. And then the writing takes us immediately to a much deeper and more universal place. And I feel like you do that in your essays too, particularly in this essay that I really like, How to Cook Scrambled Eggs, um, where you begin by describing, you know, scrambling eggs. And I'm guessing that you do this slow cooking scramble method Mm -hmm. because you're writing, you know, keep stirring the raw egg fluid, keep (laughs) stirring the raw Uh egg fluid. Um, This essay, yeah, it's about making and eating eggs in many different ways, but it's also about your relationship with food and family. What were you trying to capture? With that piece specifically, I wanted to write about sort of memory and life and family and the things that we inherit from other people. I think I tend to, especially when um, the ideas sort of feel really big and almost like impossibly lofty, I tend to try to go the other way and say like, oh, what is like a really funny or fun sort of very tiny, minuscule thing that I can focus on that will sort of turn into these bigger ideas? That was the idea of the eggs and throughout that essay, it's uh, it's really a bunch of different recipes about uh, different egg dishes that I remember throughout my life and how I, I wanted to focus on that as a, as a way to relate to the food of my childhood and the food that my parents made and then sort of like the food that I discovered growing up and, and coming of age and 
and how those things relate to each other. Yeah, I mean, you you talk about the things that you inherit, like maybe unintentionally. What are some of these small things that you feel like you have unintentionally inherited? I mean, in the egg essay specifically, I think one of the like the questions I set up earlier was that as an adult, I whenever I like soft boil an egg, I crack the shell of the egg with like the back of a spoon and I crack it all the way around and then I peel it. And um, I learned as an adult that that is not how everybody cracks their soft or hard boiled eggs. And um, I kind of leave that question lingering. And then uh, at the end of the essay, I talk about um, my parents like texting me the recipe for how to make tea eggs. And one of the sort of essential steps of making a tea egg is to boil an egg and then crack uh, the shell of the egg all around with the back of a spoon so that like the shell sort of stays on the egg but is cracked uniformly so that the tea can can get in and so I, I wanted to tie like the question of why I crack my eggs like that and have it answered by oh this is actually something that my parents did and that um, existed in my childhood that I had not drawn the connection to until now and I think that's sort of a, a recurring theme in the book where there's another essay where I talk about what I believed was like a discovery where I was like, oh, I'm the first person uh, in my family to really care about plants and to really find joy in raising house plants, and then visiting home and suddenly realizing that like my parents have had plants in their home for my entire life where like it's it's something that I grew up around but never really noticed until suddenly it was something that I cared about too and then and then I went home and I realized oh obviously I grew up around plants I love that like kind of discovering that you're not as original as you think you are <laughs> yeah exactly it's it's always a very humbling thing and my parents are always um are always very quick to point out like that I get stuff from them which is very sweet well, Johnny, it's been so good to talk to you. Johnny Sun's new book is Goodbye Again, Essays, Reflections, and Illustrations. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Morgan. This was such a pleasure. Coming up, as the sea level continues to rise, will the residents of Pearl Avenue in Revere, Massachusetts, keep paying the cost of flood damage to stay in their community, or will they pick up and go? Plus, the risks of rising seas for seniors living on the coast. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Sea level is rising. Storms are becoming more dangerous. More places are flooding. But we have yet to see a mass exodus from the New England coastline. So why are people staying? Pearl Avenue is this quiet street in Revere, Massachusetts. It's got beautiful views of the ocean and Belle Isle Marsh. And many of its residents are part of the same big extended family. They've lived there for decades and say it's a great place to raise kids. But then there's the ever more frequent flooding. WBUR's Miriam Wasser brings us a story of a neighborhood grappling with climate change. 22-year-old Samantha Woodman grew up in a small white house on Pearl Ave, 
I absolutely love this street. My whole family is on here, so it's really nice because we always used to just go over each other's houses at night. Then it's like, this is my aunt's house right here. So it was a very nice neighborhood to grow up in. But growing up on Pearl Ave also meant that flooding was just part of life. Living near the ocean and on a street that borders a tidal marsh, Woodman says it was normal for people's lawns to disappear under several inches of water during storms or really high tides. I remember there was a storm when I was much younger. And the house across the street, that gray one right there, they had these bins in the back full of toys or whatever that we used to play with. And all of that was carried out to the marsh. Pearl Ave makes a tee with the parkway that runs along the ocean. The spot where the two streets intersect is like the bottom of a bowl. The parkway slopes up on both sides, and so does Pearl Ave. Until a few months ago, the Woodmans rented a house a few lots in from the intersection. It was a part of the street that didn't usually see much flooding. But in early January 2018, the Boston area was slammed by a big nor'easter. On Pearl Ave, residents were expecting to get hit with some snow and moderate flooding. What they got was absolutely pummeled. 2018 was um, a time I want to forget. A time most of us want to forget. This is Sam Woodman's mom, Don Woodman. The heat had gone out in their home, so the family was staying with friends in another part of town. On Pearl Ave, meanwhile, as high tide approached, huge waves crested a nearby seawall, and the water in the marsh was rising fast. My cousin Sandy was sending me the videos and the pictures, and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, and I'm not even there to do anything. That evening, as temperatures dipped into the single digits, the water turned into a slushy, frozen mess. When the Woodmans came back the next day, their car, like at least 20 other cars on the street, was stuck in the ice and totaled. The family's only means of transportation was gone. It was a huge deal. You know, we're not wealthy. We, we, we scrape by. I'm raising, I'm a single mom, two kids, two girls. It was hard. It was really, it was heartbreaking. Insurance covered some of the cost of a new car, but Woodman had to dip deep into her savings. Still, sitting on the stoop a few feet away from where the car was wrecked, she says she feels lucky that the family didn't lose more. Some of these homes were, number 30 was basically destroyed. And I know 40 also had significant damage. Across the street, things got really bad for Christine Lavigure and her husband. Their house abuts the marsh, which had basically merged with the choppy ocean water during the storm. We evacuated. We actually evacuated. The water was up to my husband in the middle of his chest in the basement. Um, the washer and dryer was sparking. We had to shut the electrical panel off. We called the fire department. They came and got us. The family lost three cars, their washer and dryer, their furnace, and their hot water heater. Lavigure says that flood insurance covered some of the cost, but she had to pay for a lot of repairs out of her own pocket. It was thousands. It was definitely thousands. It wasn't like over 10000 but down close. A few weeks later, they were hit by another big storm, and then another in March. With all the climate changes... The water seems to be getting higher and higher each year. Um, so it's more of a challenge. When I first came here, it wasn't that bad, you know. So why does she stay? Why does anyone stay? Well, her husband grew up on this street. She knows all of her neighbors. She can hear the ocean at night. And her backyard overlooks Belle Isle Marsh. Yes, 2018 was really bad, she says. But in general, the benefits of living here outweigh the risks. Down the street, Sam Woodman's aunt, Sandra Castellarine, says she made a similar calculation. A few years ago, she acquired an empty lot from her father, who lives next door, and built a new house a few hundred feet from the ocean. It seems kind of kind of bold to decide to build a house. <laughs> I knew that question would come, and 
and you know I grew up here so I know I knew what to expect which is why I had planned to make sure that when I did this house it could withstand the floods. There's a five-foot crawl space underneath her house that's designed to flood. The 2018 storm caused some damage anyway. She got a lot of seaweed which grew mold and needed professional cleaning. She also lost all of her Christmas decorations, lawn furniture, and anything else she had stored below the house. Castellarine says she knows there are people out there who will hear her story and say she's irresponsible, that everyone on the street is irresponsible for staying. I myself think, was it irresponsible? But it's not going to be tomorrow that none of us can live here anymore. Just, and I guess probably because I've lived here so long. You know, I grew up here, so it's tough. Castellarine, like many other people on the street, knows that the sea levels are rising. But she says the neighborhood is worth protecting. And she wonders whether the city or state could do more to help them. City officials say there isn't much to be done. Even if they fortified the neighborhood with 10-foot seawalls, the water would still come up from below the ground because this whole area was once ocean and marshland. Mother Nature is the boss, they say. I think anyone can make the argument to save areas because it's about worth to yourself. It's about how you feel about a certain place. And the people that live there tend to care more about the place and they want to keep it for as long as possible. Sam Woodman says the experience of growing up here, and in particular, the devastating storm of 2018, has inspired her to become a climate activist and study sustainability. She understands that the street will be underwater in a few decades, but she hopes the neighborhood lasts long enough that she can show it to her future kids before it's gone. From the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser. Coastal flooding is particularly risky for seniors, yet more older Americans are living in coastal communities than ever before. U.S. Census data shows that the number of people over 65 living on the coast actually went up by 89% over the last few decades. Many of those seniors want nothing more than to stay in their homes. But CAI's Eve Zukoff reports threats from climate change are making it harder for them to do that. So this is my great-grandfather's house that was originally built down here, one of the first. 70-year-old Nelson Orr loves his gray-shingled beachfront home in the town of Barnstable. It's been passed down through the family, but it was built in the 1920s. Lately, though, things have changed. Well, traditionally, the house would get flooded in hurricanes, big hurricanes, and the water would come up to the driveway, breach the driveway, and then go into the basement to the tune of four or five feet. But it was kind of a rare occurrence. But lately, I would say due to climate change, water levels are higher, and we could get flooded with smaller storms. Last summer, Orr moved his heating system upstairs after flooding destroyed several furnaces. And he's considering buying an apartment in the greater Boston area for easier access to doctor's appointments and as a safe haven in case of a major storm. You're vulnerable down here at any age, but as you get older, you know, it, it's just harder to do the cleanup, and, you know, you get tired. <laughs> We're old. Retiring to the shore is a deeply rooted American dream. But experts say the growing population of coastal seniors is especially vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. More frequent flooding means less road access for emergency vehicles. Rising temperatures mean more heat strokes, and intensifying storms mean overburdened community care and medical systems. The bottom line is older adults and hurricane disasters and things of that sort don't mix. That's David Dosa, 
a geriatrician and associate professor of health services at Brown University. Anytime you expose an older adult to something like a hurricane, their risk of mortality, their risk of hospitalization, their risk of you know succumbing to any one of their other medical problems goes up. Of course, the impacts of climate change affect coastal people of all ages. But DOSA says age diminishes our ability to manage the destabilizing effects of nature and disease. Our lung function, for example, goes down. Our ability to manage hot and cold goes down. Our ability to respond to crises cognitively goes down. So it's really a culmination of many little cuts that ultimately give you less functional ability to weather, you know, the initial storm. One big problem? power. More frequent and intense storms will likely result in more power outages. So generators are increasingly important for seniors who may be dependent on heating and cooling or who rely on refrigerators to store their medication and well-lit homes to prevent falls. Being on fixed incomes, most of them, they don't have the resources for the generator. They're in older homes. They're trying to keep up with their basic home maintenance. On the Cape, David Karras is an aging-in-place remodeling specialist. He says mobility is an issue. In many coastal areas around the country, raising a home on stilts can save it from floodwaters. But for seniors, adding a flight of stairs is moving in the wrong direction. It can also be deeply isolating as the climb becomes a barrier to casual trips. They have voiced concerns to me if a road floods, if a pole comes down, if the wires are across the road and they have a medical emergency, what are they going to do and who's going to help them? That's a question that 89-year-old Jan Hively has asked herself. I realize I really have to watch every step I take. At the same time, I can feel my mind changing. The thoughts flood in and my sense of focus floats out on the top of that flood. But the Harwich resident says she doesn't feel especially vulnerable. I feel as if I can adapt to anything. I also think that if I really watch out, I can live to be 100. Because my sister's 99 and I'm damn well going to stay alive as long as she's around. But the resilience and determination of seniors now and those to come will likely be tested as coastal living collides with the intensifying impacts of climate change. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. If you're spring cleaning and thinking of the junk you want to donate, think again. The nonprofit Goodwill is asking people to be a bit more careful about what they drop off. Goodwill says in recent years, its own trash bill has exploded, a result of unsellable, broken, and non-recyclable items ending up in its donation bins. New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman has more. I'll set the scene. I'm outside the Seabrook Goodwill. It's a bright, sunny day, and they're about to open up for donations. And we hope everyone brings great things that help our programs, but we know some people make some questionable judgments about what is good to donate. And so we're talking about the literal trash we sometimes see slip through in the donation stream. This is Heather Steves, spokesperson for the Goodwill locations in Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire. Steves is armed with trash examples, things stuffed into bags they received just the day before. A lampshade, which is stained and disgusting and literally falling apart. There's a small table missing a leg, cracked Tupperware, a used sponge, 
dental medical tool. Um, I can't believe I'm touching it either. It's really, really, truly disgusting. Goodwill does recycle lots of what it can't sell. It reuses textiles and refurbishes some broken electronics. But last year, it threw away more than 13 million pounds of waste, technically other people's garbage, across its 30 northern New England locations. All this trash adds up to more than a million dollars a year in a trash bill, and it's been growing every year for the past five years. So what is going on here? Reagan Bissonnette is with the Concord-based Northeast Resource Recovery Association, a recycling group. She says to some extent, the useless donations are part of a phenomenon called wish cycling. Where people are hoping that something is recyclable and therefore they put it in with their recycling. And so I think similarly, Goodwill is probably experiencing that. We've been trained not to throw anything away, but not how to get rid of it properly. And a lot of what we buy, we don't even need in the first place. And this isn't just a goodwill issue. They are absolutely inundated with stuff. Cindy Eisenhower is a professor in the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine. The climate connection here is that landfills emit greenhouse gases that warm the planet. And a lot of what we keep buying and throwing away is made from fossil fuels. Eisenhower researches the entire reuse economy, from yard sales to thrift shops to goodwills. The challenge is these sellers rely on people dropping off their items. And of course, nobody wants to discourage the donations. So I think everybody feels that they're walking a very fine line here. And so Goodwill is doing this, a bit of a media tour, asking people to be more careful. And their timing here is strategic. Spring cleaning is always very busy. The only busier time we have is when Marie Kondo comes out with a new TV show. Spring cleaning, yes. Ron Davitt is dropping off a trunk full of items in Seabrook. All is in pretty good shape. Actually, as I look at this, there's no drawer. I'll probably keep that and throw it away. But he's got clothes in good condition, some housewares, and a piece of brown fabric. A dog. Oh, dog costumes? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Love it. (laughs) Very small dog costumes. This is for our dachshund who's in the car. Hot dog. See, this is not trash. That dog costume will go within one minute of being on the sales floor. Steve says the key question to ask before dropping something off is, if you needed it, would you buy it in this condition? Or another way to think about it. You know, we've seen comments on our Facebook page recently that are like, if you wouldn't give it to your judgmental mother-in-law, don't donate it. And I think that's a pretty good guide stick. Your mother-in-law would love that dog costume. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians here in New England. And if you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 